Turn your Bibles over to 2 Peter, the first chapter. 2 Peter, the first chapter. There is a doctrine in the religious world among Christians called eternal security, or once saved, always saved, as it's sometimes expressed. I don't believe this. Most of you, maybe all of you, do not believe it, and, and we point out sometimes the possible uh, consequences that could come to a person who believed and taught this, that uh, once you are saved, then, uh, then you never have to have any concern, you can never be lost, you can never fall away again. But although that is the case from the standpoint of your choice, there will never be a time in our lives where we do not have free choice. But yet on the other hand, the scriptures in a multitude of passages, and this is a very plain one here, make it clear that you can have the kind of confidence where you believe in eternal security or once saved, always saved. That, that it literally is such that uh, God has made a promise to us that if we so desire then when we are saved and we enter into that relationship with Christ, it will always be, and we can be absolutely positive, uh, no ifs, ands, or buts about it, can be absolutely positive that we will not fall and we will enter into that eternal kingdom. Also, along with the same promise, it's interesting that uh, there is the guarantee that uh, we don't have to be unproductive or ineffective in serving Christ that God gives us a guarantee. He says that if you'll just simply do what I ask you to do, I guarantee you. He doesn't use the word guarantee. I'll, we'll see if the word he does use, though. He says, I guarantee you that you will not be ineffective or unproductive. You will be productive. And so the Bible tells us it's our choice. God has given us a prescription, uh, something where we can put our trust in him and carry out and do what he's asked us to do. And we will be very productive Christians. We will be very effective Christians. And we will never fall. And we will enter into the eternal kingdom. And it's strictly within the realm of our choice. I'm reading from 2 Peter, the first chapter, beginning with verse 3. A passage we're all familiar with and have studied many times over the years. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory. Through these he has given us his, his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So he says the world we live in has a lot of corruption. And these, cor these corruptions that exist come about because of evil desires. If people did not desire things that are wrong, there would be no corruption in the world. But he says you can live in the world. And even though you live in a world that is corrupt, 
you do not have to be contaminated by that world, but rather you can participate in the divine nature of God. One translation renders it partake of the divine nature of God. So we can live in a world that is corrupt and yet not be corrupt and actually participate in the divine nature of God. For this very reason, what's the reason? For this reason of escaping the corruption in the world, not being a participant uh, in the evil desires, but rather being a participant in the divine nature, the question becomes, how do we participate in the divine nature? How do we partake of the divine nature? How do we live so that we actually escape the corruption that is in the world? For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to add to goodness knowledge, to add to knowledge self-control, to add to self-control perseverance, and add to perseverance godliness, add to godliness brotherly kindness, and add to brotherly kindness love. Now, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, in other words, you're always growing, you're always increasing in these qualities, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, anybody that has become ineffective or unproductive as a Christian, then he says they're not partaking of these qualities. Uh, Peter is saying you cannot partake of these qualities and at the same time be ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he's nearsighted, blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now notice, first of all, you'll notice the promises and what, what exactly he's saying about these qualities. He's, he acknowledges that we live in a world that is corrupt. He tells us that the corruption that is in the world comes about for evil desires, people that, that live their lives wanting to just satisfy themselves and the lust of their flesh in that moment of time, and the end result is corruption in the world. But he says, although you live in a corrupt world, you don't have to be corrupt yourself. You don't have to be an individual that walks around and is controlled by evil desires. But he says, it's your choice. You and I can participate in the divine nature if we so desire. You and I don't have to be corrupt. We don't have to follow evil desires. We can participate in the divine nature right here on this earth. Now he said it begins by making every effort. In other words, he says it won't come without effort. It won't come without effort. But if we're willing to make every effort to add these qualities in increasing measure, he said the end result is you will not be ineffective and you will not be unproductive and you will never fall, and you will enter into the eternal kingdom. Well, now when we look at what is offered there, it's really hard for my mind to imagine a person that 
believes this, has come to an, an understanding of the scriptures where he understands that, uh, that it's the will of God, and he's being given a prescription, I mean, where he literally says to you, I don't know anything in life that offers you a guarantee. I don't know any job that offers a guarantee. Uh, I don't know any doctor that guarantees his work. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know any guarantee that I have that I will be alive tomorrow. Life doesn't have many guarantees, does it? Uh, companies put out warranties and they say, we guarantee this product. What happens if that company goes bankrupt or goes out of business? Well, I got a leaky roof over at Swiss that's got a 20-year guarantee on it, and it just pours out water regularly, and there's no company to back up the guarantee. You see, they've done, they've done gone out of business. There's all kinds of people out there that have bought things and swimming pools, a siding for their house, any number of things, and it had this fantastic guarantee, and, and then when they went to collect on their guarantee, they found out that the businesses went bankrupt, and it's out, and, and they really don't have it. Uh, if you're looking for a job, go ask your boss if he will guarantee you that you will have employment there 10 years from now. He cannot do that. Uh, ask anybody that, uh, that will guarantee you anything positively. We don't have any real guarantees in this life. And that, that's what makes this impressive. He says that this is something that is for sure. You will never fall. You will be productive. You will be effective. You won't have to go around worrying, am I going to be effective for Jesus? Am I going to be a productive Christian? You won't even have to worry about this. You don't have to be corrupt. You can live in a corrupt city. I believe you can live in Watts or Harlem. They may shoot you, but you can live there without being corrupt. I believe that although it is extremely difficult, a Christian can be in all kinds of bad situations, including the Marine Corps or wherever it is, and not be corrupt themselves. I believe they can be in politics and not be corrupt. Didn't say it wouldn't be difficult. But he's saying you live in a corrupt world. But he said, if you'll do these things, you will, instead of becoming corrupt, actually participate in the divine nature of God. Okay, now let's look at it. And he tells us now on the surface. No beating around the bush. It's going to take effort, right? He said, if you make every effort. Okay, number one. He says, add to your faith goodness. He assumes that you're starting out with faith. Actually, if you don't have faith, you're not even thinking about the rest, right? There's no sense to even talk about faith. Because obviously, if he's writing to Christians who have already been convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he was raised from the dead, that he gave himself as a sacrifice for their sins. These people have examined the prophecies. They've heard the eyewitnesses. They've witnessed the miracles. And they've said, we believe, we have faith. And that's our position today. Uh, we've examined the prophecies, we've examined the eyewitnesses, we've examined the evidence for the scriptures, and so we have faith. But he says, okay, now you have faith that it's from God. But do you want a guaranteed success? Do you want to be productive? Do you want to be effective? Do you want the guarantee that you will never fall? Do you want to, to be sure that you don't have to become corrupt, that you can partake of the divine nature? He says, begin to exercise your faith. Number one, add your faith goodness. According to the scriptures, goodness is not something that just naturally happens to us. 
You know, we all have, when we look at people, we sometimes, some people we make no comment one way or the other, and then there are those who say that is a good person or that's a bad person, right? And some are maybe a whole lot right in between. We just don't refer to them as good or bad. But we know that there are some people that have qualities such as honesty and justice and fairness, etc., that cause us to say they are good. And there are others that have these others. Well, what uh, Peter is saying, the person who is good and in the process of becoming better isn't that way naturally. If they have those qualities, they have made a decision in their mind, and they really have said, I want to be a good person. Maybe they've said it in different ways. Maybe they've said it, I, I want to be liked. Uh, you, you know, I, I want a good conscience. You know, I, I want to treat people fair for whatever reason, but whatever that may be the reason, they have made a decision. I want to be like my, whoever it may be, somebody, because I can see all the good they've done. But for whatever reason, good people aren't just good naturally. They have made a decision, and they said, I want to be a good person, and therefore I'm going to put in effort. All right, now notice something about these qualities so that we don't get an inferiority complex along the way. There is the acknowledgement there that you never possess any one of them to perfection, but he said if you possess them in increasing measure, right? So God has not asked us to possess any one of these qualities in perfect measure. He knows there are not. As Paul said in Galatians, if, if we could have kept the law perfectly, there would have been no need for Jesus and the sacrifice on the cross. And so God knows that, that if I could possess any of these qualities in their perfection, there would have been no need for Jesus to die for my sins. So God gives me some leeway to start with. He's very understanding. He looks at me in the flesh and he says, I know that you're not going to reach these goals to their perfection. I've taken care of that in Christ. I've done what you can't do. You can't meet perfection. I've met it in Christ. But what I'm telling you is this, that if you'll just partake of these qualities in an increasing measure and you become more and more, you can participate in my nature. That's what he said. When he says participate in the divine nature, this is the nature of God. It's that simple. God is good. God is love. God has perfect self-control. God is persevering or long-suffering. God is kind. God is merciful. So this is the nature of God. And he says you won't have it in its perfection, but if you will do it in an increasing measure. So, wherever you're at, and, and anywhere on the line, we're at different degrees there, he says we ought to be increasing in that, and it's a choice that we make, and I will not and you will not become a good person without effort on our part. All right, then he said, add to our goodness knowledge. Can, when it comes to goodness, can you be any better than your knowledge? You can't, can you? You may want to be good, but you know, wanting to be good and, and even knowing how to be good sometimes is uh, something you have to think about. How many times are we in the situation, well, I want to do the right thing. The question is, what is the right thing? So for a person to say, I want to be good, but I'm not going to spend the time studying God's Word and reflecting on God's Word and meditating on God's Word and increasing my knowledge of God's Word, 
is counterproductive. It's not going to happen. Uh, you may have all the intense desire in the world to be a good person, but you cannot be any better than your knowledge. And there's going to become any number of times in your life where you're going to be in the situation and you say, I want to do the right thing. How do I answer my child on this? Or how do I handle this situation? Uh, how do I have the appropriate word? How many times have you been in that situation? Like a death? Or somebody in the hospital? Or somebody that's having problems with life or whatever it may be? And, and so you're searching your brain and you say, what is the appropriate word? What can I say to comfort those people? I've got to deal with that in about an hour or so. Can I say anything to comfort those people? Or can I give any hope to these individuals over here that the doctor has already said that, uh, that it's terminal? Or the individual that's having problems with their child or anything like that, do I, what is the right thing to say? Well, I don't believe we can be any better than our knowledge. And so if we, if we want to be sure that we, we're saying the right thing and we have the words of comfort, then he says we're going to do it by increasing in our knowledge. And so all our lives, we ought to get better at saying the right thing because our knowledge is increasing. You know, this is, has so many positive things about it. When I, think that, when I look at it, you know, the older I get, the more I appreciate what's here. Physically, it's been downhill for me for 20 years. And, it, and, it, and I, it's going more downhill. And so I had to accept the fact some years back that I wouldn't play basketball for Kentucky. And then I had to accept the fact that I wasn't going to play pro baseball either. And I had to accept a lot of facts. And, and the old body just keeps getting older and older and older. But what he's saying here is that spiritually, psychologically, you can get better and better and better. There ought not to be any more productive people for the Lord than older people. Within the body, they ought to have more knowledge. They ought to be higher up the ladder when it comes to goodness. They ought to be higher up the ladder in all of these qualities. And so you can sit there and you can think, hey, I'm 50 or I'm 60 or I'm 70 or, however, or I'm 80 or whatever old you are. And you might be thinking about the aches and pains that you have or you're a little bit closer to death. And what he's saying is that, hey, you can continue to increase, you can continue to grow, and about those eternal matters, you can just grow all your life. You can learn all your life. I think one of the saddest things with some older people is that they quit learning. They honestly quit learning. They come to a conclusion right here that they've learned enough, and they stop. And that's it. You can learn all your life. Your mind never quits learning. And so, he said, if you put forth effort, you should always be increasing in knowledge. And as you increase in knowledge, that gives you greater potential in goodness. All right, now, self-control. We, we sometimes look at some individuals and we'll say, he has a lot of self-control. Now, he doesn't have much self-control. Well, let me ask you this. Was this guy that you're saying has a lot of self-control, was, was he born with something spiritually that this guy wasn't born with? I don't think so. What you're saying in self-control is control of self. I don't think it's any more easy for one person than it is another. 
I, I can't understand why it's, it's easier for one person to exercise self-control than is Now I can understand that there may be individual things where one person may have a greater desire and it would take more to exercise self-control in that one area. But on the other hand, the other person may have a greater desire in some other area and it would take more there. But looking at it, I, I just believe that we're all even here. That, it, that it's just as difficult for any one of us. And so he says, control of self. Now, if self always wanted to do the right thing, you wouldn't need self-control, would you? It's because self doesn't always want to do the right thing. So he says, self-control is something, think about some of the, the advertisements and the things that we talk about on TV and in the schools and all that, where we try to get people to do right and wrong. We, we, we warn young people against drugs. We warn against the use of alcohol. We warn them to stay in school and study. We warn them against per permissive uh, sexual behavior outside of marriage. There's all kinds of advertising telling us, warning us against various things. What is the bottom line on all of these? Isn't it self-control? Um, whether or not you study or watch the tube or a sudden daydream is, is a matter of self-control. Then I spoke to a group at the graduation the other night. Man, when your when you kids get out to high school or when they go to college or wherever, uh, I'm not going to tell anybody that working algebra and studying physics and studying geography is as interesting as watching a, a good ball game or, or whatever else you or a good movie or whatever it is that you enjoy. I'm not going to tell anybody that, that it's as appealing, because at my age, I'd rather watch the ball game than study those things. So what determines then is, is self-control. And the people that are successful with their lives, I don't believe you can be successful with your life without that one thing. Let's go back to the other two. We, we showed how that knowledge affects goodness. And you're really not going to be good without a certain amount of knowledge. Let's look at self-control. How much knowledge you're going to have without self-control? How much goodness you're going to have without self-control? You're not. Because when it comes to being good, there's too many times where you want to do the, the other thing at the moment. And when it comes to knowledge, ask anybody. Uh, Brother Nichols, I remember years back, you may have heard him say this, you know, Gus Nichols, when... Uh, he records the man to come up to him and said, Brother, Brother Nichols, I'd give anything to have your knowledge of the Bible. And of course, Nichols had a reputation for just quoting verses at random all over the place. And he said, I'd give anything to have your knowledge of the Bible. And Nichols told him, says, you can have my knowledge of the Bible. Are you willing to give up X amount of time per day to study the Bible? That's how he says, I've got my knowledge. It's that simple. So that Extra, what are we talking about there? Would every Christian like to have a great knowledge of the Bible? I believe so. So then what, what's the real thing we're talking about? I think it's self-control. Can we take such control of ourselves that we say that there is, there is a certain amount? Notice we live in a world of corruption and stress and problems. And you have to deal with all kinds of problems. And there's things that you don't even want to deal with that you have to deal with them. And and you're getting called on from every angle. And it is so easy 
And this is something I, I have appreciated more when I got out of preaching full-time and, and went to work in the world. It is so easy to get caught up in what's involved in making a living and handling all the problems, the problems with the job. And, and then as you become older and, you're, and you've got so many responsibilities, it is so easy to occupy all your time with that because you don't even have enough time in the day to do everything everybody wants you to do. It's just not there. And sometimes I want to stand up and scream and say, I'm just one person. That's it. I'm one person. And I don't have but 24 hours a day. And so we have that. So I don't believe any of us will develop a good knowledge without self-control. And so we say, listen, I have time to read the newspaper. Somehow I manage to watch the news. Somehow I can, I, I, people watch ball games. Is doing this little thing over here that somebody wants me to do really as important as a good knowledge of God's Word? And not only that, maybe I'll blow it over here if I don't have a good knowledge. And so I wind up saying, for me, a certain amount of time is going to go into studying. And I don't care if somebody gets mad because I don't answer the phone. And I don't care if somebody gets mad because I don't go where somewhere that they think I should go or do something that they think I sh shouldn't. A certain amount of my time is going to go, and so I exercise control of self, and I sit out and I try to throw everything else out of my mind, and I study. And what's really involved is self-control. Everybody wants the information. The difficult part is exercising control of self, and I think what we have to be convinced of is that this thing is more important than a lot of other things. So, self-control determines knowledge, determines goodness here. To self-control, perseverance. People aren't naturally long-suffering. Man, all of us get mad real quick. Some of us just make the decision, say, no, I'll take that a little longer before I blow up. That's what we say. Somebody irritates us, and one person, you, you irritate them just a little bit, and they come right back at you. Another person, you irritate them, they're irritated too. They'd like to come right back at you. They said, no, I'll hold it. And I'll be long-suffering. I'll just keep taking it. And I'll give this person another chance. And so a person that perseveres, whatever it is that life throws at them, they have the same temptations to blow up or to say, I quit. Now I'm getting out of here. But what they do, they say, no, what would God have me do? I'm going to hang in there and do it God's way. And so perseverance is a decision of mine. It's just not a natural quality we're born with. We're born with, we make a decision. I'm going to be a persevering type of individual. Godliness speaks for itself. It wouldn't copy Solomon. It's a decision we make. When we say that they are, they are a godly, that is a godly person, not naturally, they're not. Nobody's walking around as a godly person naturally. Now, the body belongs to the animal kingdom. It's our spirit that belongs to God. And so if I'm expressing something in my body that comes across as godliness, then it's because of an effort that's being made to, to take charge of this animal body and allow the spirit to express something of God through that body. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. Kindness is defined as sympathy in action. In other words, when we say to somebody, I, I sympathize with you, that's not kindness. That's just a natural response. If somebody's going through something that's hard. But it, when that sympathy motivates you to do something for the person, that's kindness. 
And that's the definition in Vine's Expository Dictionary. Uh, you have sympathy because of a person's situation. That's a very natural and easy thing. But then you've got a choice to make. You have sympathy for them, and then you have a choice. Do I respond to that and do something? And for example, the funeral. Now you, you sympathize with the people, but then am I going to respond and bake them a cake or, or mix some food and, and take it to them and take the time and go say a few words to them? That becomes kindness, the sympathy in action. If you possess these qualities, and right after that, the word love, love is not a natural thing, it's a choice. You and I make the decision to practice agape love. It's an attitude of heart where we do what is right for the other person, whether we feel like it or whether he wants it. But what is right for the other person, we may not feel like doing it, may not like to do it, but we're going to do it simply because it's right, and the other person may not want us to do it. We're going to do it because it's right. That is agape love, or something that some writers are now calling tough love. You, you do what is right, no matter what. You do it simply because it's right. If we do this, we will be kept from being ineffective and unproductive in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can be effective as Christians, and if we talk about the church as a whole today, not being effective in the world that we live in, not being productive in the world that we live in, that if I understand this, what he's saying is that we're not doing as good a job as we should of partaking of these qualities. And then he says, if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So he begins by telling us our plight, tells us how to get out of it, and gives us the motivation to do it. Uh, the motivation is that you will be productive, you will be effective, uh, you will never fall, and you will have an entrance into the eternal kingdom. I don't know anything more than that anybody can give us than that, and that's the motivation that Peter gives us for it. Let's conclude our study for this morning. If there is any among us, not a Christian, and already through your study you have a knowledge and belief in Jesus as the Son of God, if you desire to respond to him, we give you the opportunity, as together we stand and sing.